morning, everybody. It is Lisa Salberg with you here today. It is Tales from the Heart, brought to you by the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And today, my podcast buddy is Dr. Patient Alex Deveria from UPenn. Good morning, Alex. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Lisa? Sorry, I was late. It, it is understandable. Um, you know, I was I reached out to Julie on our team. I'm like, you want to you want to pop Alex an email? I'm like, he's early career. He doesn't have like four admins running around after him with a schedule. It's probably on his cell phone and he's busy. So um, that's what happened, right? <laughs> these, are, these are all my assistants. They're right here. <laughs> yeah, the fancy life of a doctor, right? Mm. You're doing everything. Okay. Well, as you know, here on Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, we talk about all matters related to HCM and we have themes of the month. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If you're a frequent listener, welcome back. Um, what we're trying to do here with the podcast is raise awareness, educate, engage the community, and really kind of bring everybody to information in the manner in which they want to hear it. Some of you want to listen to a podcast, some of you want to watch a webinar. We'll do both. So, um, Alex, the themes of the month for March for us are arrhythmia management, and life with devices. So I thought I would talk a little bit, as we tend to do, both from the doctor side of Alex and the patient side of Alex. So sure. I know my burden with arrhythmias was just a mad amount of PVCs and uh, a lot of NSVT, which feeling those arrhythmias were very different. Um, not knowing quite when they would pop up in my life was a little unsettling. And makes it a little hard to, you know, predict what you're going to be able to do in a day. Um, I can tell you that I had many meetings where I would be sitting there doing my work and I'd be like, I'm going to need to step out for a second. And go through <laughs> your little moment, get yourself back to zero and rejoin life and pretend that what just happened didn't happen. Does this ring any bells with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting with the abnormal heart rhythms that are associated with this disease, some, you know, and, and it's different for everybody, but some people know exactly when they have some sort of rhythm and they can tell you at 3.30 PM on this day, I started feeling bad and I stayed feeling that way. Other times it's just sporadic skip beats that are, you know, most people are what I say to my patients, because a lot of people never even heard the term palpitation. And so I say, you know, it's more of an uncomfortable awareness of your own heartbeat. Most people don't even think about the fact they have a heart. But every once in a while, when you have these skip beats, this like uncomfortable thud that almost leaves you with this like emptiness feeling that then the next beat is even harder. Those are palpitations. And sometimes people feel those every single one. And they're incredibly uncomfortable and they can have a burden on your quality of life. Um, I thought so they're mostly distracting. Yeah. I'm you know, afraid of them because they didn't kill me the last time. Yeah. I just find that distracting because now I'm not thinking about what I was thinking about. I'm thinking about, is my heart going to do that again? Is this going to turn worse? What's going on? Yeah. And, and, you know, I also, you know, make sure patients realize that just because they don't feel abnormal rhythms doesn't mean, oh, I don't have any of those. I don't need to get checked for abnormal rhythms because some of the scarier, you know, life-threatening rhythms you will not feel um, and you cannot feel. And that's why we're constantly 
know, if you go to a center of excellence, they're going to be doing rhythm monitoring every year, looking for those because you don't, you won't know them when they're coming. And, uh, and so those are those, like some of those non-sustained ventricular tachycardias or NSVT. Most people don't feel that. Um, and so that's why we monitor for those. So let's say, um, I'm going to stick with ventricular arrhythmias for a moment. I'm going to break this mm-hmm. up. Bottom part of the heart arrhythmias, ventricle arrhythmias. We'll talk about atrial arrhythmias in a moment. Mm-hmm. So why are they important to know what kind they are? Yeah. Um, so the way, you know, usually I'll draw at the heart and when I'm sitting in the room with the patient, kind of point out where the thick muscle is, which tends to be in the septum or the, of the left ventricle, but it can be in different parts. You know, those, the thick muscle can have scar in it and that we know that scar doesn't conduct electricity normally. And so sometimes that abnormal conduction of electricity can just be little sporadic beats. That's what translates to us as skip beats or premature ventricular uh, contractions or PVCs. Um, Sometimes instead of being one skip beat, you can have multiple skip beats in a row. And they can go really, really fast and last up to like 15, 20 beats. Um, And those tend to be what we call non-sustained because they don't continue Mm -hmm. ventricular because they're coming from the bottom chambers and tachycardia because they're fast. Those are the ones that, you know, we have good evidence that the faster, longer rhythms like that you have and the more frequent you have them the higher risk of having a life-threatening rhythm, like a ventricular, sustained ventricular tachycardia um, can then come from that. So that's what we're looking for um, because, you know, we're, we're not good at predicting when the non-sustained rhythm is going to become a sustained rhythm. So as soon as we see non-sustained abnormal rhythms from the bottom chambers of the heart, that gets our attention. And we start looking for other risk factors to determine, do you need to be protected by a defibrillator? So let's just talk for a moment. What are some of those other risk factors and how did, how did they evolve? Yeah. So, you know, risk factor uh, has kind of modified over time. Initially we talked a lot about the things that were easy to get in the, in the patient history, sitting in the room with them. So what's your family history? Has anybody died suddenly? Uh, That sounds like it's cardiac in nature of a young age. And, you know, we really try and probe with those kind of questions. I don't think asking someone, you know, is there any family history of sudden cardiac death from HCM is a super helpful question. Very few people will <laughs> that question accurately. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times people come and say, oh, yeah, Uncle Johnny died of a heart attack at 27. Huh. That's pretty atypical to have a heart attack at 27. Tell me more. Like, well, that's what we were told. And, you know, and I hear stories like that all the time. And then, And if it tends to be on the same side of the family recurring in multiple generations, that really makes you concerned that this could not have been a heart attack, but maybe something else or, you know, family history of that same family member failing a physical exam or screening for the military, things like that should all start to poke, you know, uh, questions about more in depth heart history. But yeah, the family history of, of sudden death at a young age is concerning in yourself, history of passing out. And we really try and dig deep into the circumstances around passing out. 
you know, and, and that can be challenging. Some doctors feel very confident that they can say, oh, this was passing out because you had an abnormal heart rhythm and oh, this was passing out for some other reason. It's, it's usually pretty complicated to figure that out. But sometimes there's a couple of specific things like, um, you know, I gave blood and got really lightheaded and felt like I was going to pass out. Those right. tend to be more triggered, what we call like vasovagal type episodes. But really concerning passing out, you know, patients with HCM will tell you, I was walking and then all of a sudden I woke up on the ground. And in some instances, you know, usually when you're lightheaded and you feel like you're going down, you try and brace yourself. When I've got mm -hmm. patients coming in with a black eye and it's clear that they didn't even try and catch themselves on the way down, that's very concerning for an abnormal heart rhythm causing you to pass out. Regardless, I take all passing out very seriously. And that's something we want to know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been able to use a recent socially shared event explaining the difference of, oh, I feel like I'm going to pass out. The, when you have the <laughs> option that I'm going to sit down or fall down, those tend to be hemodynamically triggered, right? Like you're obstructed, you're dehydrated. You have a second to sit down. We go back to look at what happened with Damar, different cause, chest blow, but that just yeah. tipping over and you're down. Yeah. That's the ones we really worry about. Yeah. Those, those videos uh, that you'll see of you know, players on the field dropping, most of the times they're not trying to brace themselves when it's cardiac. They're going right. straight down. And that's because they, it's usually due to an abnormal heart rhythm that does not squeeze blood. And so you're not getting blood to your brain. Your brain's not able to react. And so you just go down. So, you know, syncope or passing out is concerning. Um, another risk factor is how thick your heart is. Um, and so do we have good data that, you know, with HCM, the current definition says that if your heart is about a centimeter and a half thick or more, then that would meet criteria. Unless if you have a family history, then we get a little bit more conservative. Um, but we know that if your heart is like greater than three times the normal thickness, and that can be associated with more scar and, and can also increase your risk for abnormal heart rhythms. And so, you know, the combination of family history, passing out, really thick heart, and then you know, abnormal rhythms on a monitor. And then the more recent advances have been in imaging. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, MRIs, if you're an HCM patient that's never had an MRI, you know, I pretty much get MRIs on all my patients um, and it helps both identify truly the anatomy of the heart, but then we get to see how much scar is in your heart. And that, you know, with work from the Marins uh, kind of helped elucidate how we quantify scar. And that's been a big game changer in terms of figuring out risk too. Um, so added the risk I'm from that. I'm going to pause you on that topic because it's an excellent topic and one that I've been speaking to Marty and Chris Kramer about a great deal and I know I sound like a broken record sometimes, but there's reasons I'm broken on this track. <clears throat> care matters. How people quantify SCAR and what they define as a lot or a little is still variable. Within 100%. high volume centers, we're talking a very similar language, but I've noticed a big problem um, with community MRIs, and that is interstitial fibrosis so that it's like fibrosis not quite 
scar scar yet. Those words can be interchangeable, but they're different. Mm-hmm. And if you're measuring all the interstitial fibrosis and not the t- you know the dark scars, the the burden can look higher. And one person who said one center said twenty eight percent, and another HCM center said six percent scar. That's the difference mm-hmm. between getting a device and not getting a device. So go to a high, if you're not sure, please have a high volume yeah. program, reread your imaging and make sure your scar burden is what you think your scar burden is. 100%. And so I, so I'm an imager. And, and so I, when I have patients come see me that have been evaluated at other centers, I always have the imaging sent to us and we reread the MRIs um, at our institution. Okay. Completely unscripted. How often is it underestimated versus overestimated? I had one go from nine to 19 in our read the other day. Cause I looked at it and I was like, whoa, that looks like a lot of scar. And we requantified it. Um, and so I would say I've had it go both ways, um, mm-hmm. but I, de- I, I have definitely had a lot of discrepancy. And so you know, when you're dealing with something that's going to push you in one direction or another for putting a device in someone, that's, in my opinion, not something that should be just taken as gospel, whatever is written on a report, um, that we should be looking at all the imaging and quantifying everything in the same way in a standard format. Um, because otherwise, well, first of all, there's discrepancies between centers. And then if you're not doing that in your own center, then you can't track progress. Um, in terms of scar burden. Some people don't have a lot of scar when they're young. And then over time, for whatever reason, scar develops. Yep. And so I, I just think it's important to make sure that when you talk to your doctor, that they have viewed the images, that they've run over them with a radiologist. If you're thinking about this is going to be what's the decision between you and getting a device, because it, it can be the tipping point. Absolutely. So what other risk factors haven't we talked about? We talked about mass hypertrophy, yeah. family history, scar burden, yeah. NSVT. Um, yeah. What other things do you look at as risk? Um, they're also, depending on specific, and I feel like a lot of times the poor apical HCMs don't get a you know, shout out, but apical HCM is quite common too. I see a lot of apical HCM and that's where the tip of the heart is thick. And so one big risk factor for those patients that a lot of times does not get seen until you do an MRI, because it's very commonly missed on echoes, is aneurysms, where the tip of the heart dilates and balloons out because you have that thickness. And then all of a sudden, you just essentially have a layer of scar at the tip of the heart that sticks out. That's another risk factor, uh, independent risk factor for abnormal heart rhythms that will push me over two. Um, so those are a couple things. I'm trying to think what else have I missed here? Um, wall thickness. And if you look at the, the risk scores, that's another, I think, important thing. Um, sometimes your doctors will talk to you about specific risk scores, mm-hmm. um, that one comes from the European society of cardiology. There's also an American version of the score, um, that look at how thick your heart is, how much obstruction you have. Left atrial dimension, yeah. Left atrial dimension. I personally think some of those scores need to be updated um, because some of the things that we used in those scores are are not really used clinically anymore. Like the way that they put in left atrial dimension is not how we report it most of the time. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are scores like that that they shouldn't be the deciding factor, but they can help guide decision-making because they essentially give you what is your overall risk over the next five years of having an event that could be life-threatening. Yeah. 
And so it helps guide a conversation, especially for people that like numbers and um, percentages. What I would say is that those scores don't include some of the newer uh, evidence from MRI, like scar burden, apical aneurysm. And so keeping that in mind is important too. But those, if you see your doctor say, like spit out a percentage, it's coming from one of those scores most likely. Okay, I'm gonna ask you a tricky question. I know the answer, you know the answer. I need to beat this answer home. Do you have to be symptomatic to be at high risk of sudden cardiac arrest? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of people that unfortunately present with cardiac arrest mm -hmm. because they had no, well, I, I'm not gonna say plenty of people, but there are, there are yeah. HCM pa patients because um, I don't want people to be out there thinking that that's going to happen to them. But it does happen that people don't know. And, and, and the, the, the challenging part, and you and I have talked about this before, is you may think you're asymptomatic, but just have never known what it was like to feel normal. That's one thing. But there are some people that have no exercise limitations. You put them on a treadmill and they can go for days. And they have very significant HCM with scar and a lot of obstruction. And for whatever reason, it doesn't affect them the same way it affects other people. And those people might not know. And it doesn't mean that they're not at high risk. And so everybody gets the same evaluation. The, we're never going to get to zero risk. There's always going to be some unknowns because it's an involving science and we're all learning together, but we've identified these particular risk factors and they're really important, but um, you can't assume because you don't feel it. It's not a real risk. I've lost many clients because they said, I don't really feel like I'm going to die. I don't feel like it. And I, I can't express enough that you don't have to feel like it. It's going to happen whether it's you want it to or not. If you have these risk factors, we know that better. I wish we had 100% clarity on all risk factors, but I think we we know the high, high risk. Yeah. We know the intermediate risk, but there's always the low risk and that doesn't mean no risk. Yeah. And, and I do think, you know, kind of like you're saying, like there's the intermediate risk. There is a, a, sh a very much a shared decision-making aspect of this. Um, Great topic to bring up. So I'm yeah. planning the agenda for the October in-person <clears throat> opening for registration in April, just saying. Um, but we're going to do a very deep dive into the concept of shared decision-making because it means one thing to a medical professional. It means something else to a patient. And I don't think we've gotten a really good opportunity to communicate what I think it means and what the doctor thinks it means and what it actually means and how to participate in it in a meaningful way, which is the core of patient advocacy. How do you advocate for yourself? How do you communicate what you want and need? Not necessarily choosing what options are available to you, your anatomy and your family history and all these other factors might be the guidance as to what is available. You don't mm -hmm. get to say, um, I would like to have a defibrillator and that be my treatment. And that's all I want. Thank you. Goodbye. There's, mm -hmm. there's layering here. 
So talk about ICDs with oh, an intermediate risk. Yeah. I mean, it's just like what you bring up where we would never put in an ICD just so you can play sports and it makes us feel better if you don't meet criteria. And that's specifically written in the guidelines, you know, to not do something like that. But I think when I, when I kind of get more at, well, first of all, I think all of these decisions should be shared, you know, mm -hmm. as your doctor, we're, we're not here to tell you what to do. You know, we're here to give you as much information as possible to empower you to make the decision that's best for you. And so I think that, you know, with some patients that kind of fall in that gray zone where, you know, some, some might say, well, your likelihood of having uh, an event in the next five years is 4%, 5%. Could happen. Not a huge risk, but, you know, it could happen. Um, and you look at the other traditional risk factors and maybe some of them are there, or maybe the family history is a little bit concerning, but it doesn't meet that strict first degree relative had this, but you see multiple other people have died suddenly. And maybe the screening hasn't been as good for you to say confidently that that first degree relative doesn't have HCM. Right. You know, there, it's it, a lot of times it's not black and white. And so then it's a discussion about like, you know, what are, what are you most concerned about? What is your biggest fear? Are you going to, I had a patient the other day tell me I have two children. My biggest fear is that when I go to bed every night that I'm going to have a sudden arrhythmia and not wake up and their risk is borderline. Right. And so it's not unreasonable to consider a defibrillator to protect them. And when they're telling you, these are my biggest fears, then you counsel them on, this is the risk of having a defibrillator implanted. This is the long-term risk. And these are the benefits. And if you feel like the benefits outweigh those risks, then we should do this. But that's what a lot of that back and forth really. And then, you know, on the other spectrum, you'll have like a 75 year old with apical HCM and aneurysm and a bunch of scar that would meet criteria for getting a defibrillator, but never even knew they had this disease. And they say, you know what? I would rather, you know, if, if an arrhythmia is the way I'm going to go, I'd rather take my chances than have a defibrillator implanted in my late seventies. Also reasonable. Close, closely approaching their eighties, very intelligent individual said, I, the scenario pretty much as you've laid it out, apical aneurysm, high risk of arrhythmia. He said, uh, and he's a physician. He was a physician. He said, I just want to talk this out with you. He's like, I know I could do this, but I also have a family history and a known gene for Alzheimer's. And I think I'd rather die suddenly than die of Alzheimer's. And I don't think I want to get an ICD. Am I suicidal? I'm like, whoa, that, that escalated quickly. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> um, and I'm yeah. like, um, no, you're just choosing a manner, a potential manner of death. And I'm mm -hmm. of the mindset that if we can have some choices in how we leave this place, that's okay. And at 80, balancing arrhythmia risk versus Alzheimer's, I might opt yeah. to have an arrhythmia as well. Yeah, I, I think the discussion should at least be had. And you and lay everything out. He's doing his job and his due diligence as a patient and as a parent trying to explain to his adult children, these are my decisions. This is what I want for my life. And that's mm -hmm. perfectly fine. He said, if I was 25, 35, 45, 55, I'd make different decisions. I'm like, and that's why you have these conversations. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. so, you know, it, there's a lot that goes into those decisions and then there's different types of defibrillators. So there, you know, there, there's a lot to talk about risk. And, and I think that that, that whole conversation should take up probably a third of your visit, a third on diagnosis and symptoms, a third on sudden cardiac death risk stratification, and then another third on the genetic aspect and the familial screening. That, that tends to be like some of the big chunks of my time. Yeah. Okay. So we've kind of beaten up the ventricle. Let's just talk quickly about the atria. Um, Mm -hmm. Atrial fibrillation and HCM is complex, doesn't respond like AFib in other people. Some people find out they have AFib first and HCM second. Um, Some people live with HCM a long time and then start experiencing atrial fibrillation. What is atrial fibrillation? Yeah, so the atria are the two top chambers. If you think about the heart like uh, ice cream cones with the scoops on top, they are the ice cream scoops on top. Um, and so those two top chambers receive blood from the body and then the blood then passes into the ventricles. And those are the bump, pumping chambers of the body that pump the blood around. And so the atria usually have a very nice, normal electrical conduction that goes through and tells them to beat before the ventricles beat. And what can happen is that that electrical message can go completely haywire. And then, and things that put you at risk for that happening if your atria, those top chambers get stretched and dilated, that stretches the electrical system too. And so when you stretch on those electrical systems, they just start going haywire sometimes. And that can happen if you have a really stiff heart, like what happens in HCM. It can happen if you have a lot of obstruction uh, due to what we call anterior motion or systolic anterior motion of the valve, which lets blood go backwards. Those top chambers aren't used to seeing a bunch of blood go backwards. They're not supposed to see any blood go backwards. And so they're constantly being just overloaded with fluid and pressure, which makes them dilate and puts you at risk for stretching them out and having abnormal rhythms. So instead of having that nice, normal contraction, the top chambers can go electrically haywire. And instead of squeezing, they more like they quiver. Um, The imagery that Someone said to me when I was learning medicine uh, early on, I was like, it's like a bag of worms. They just do like this. <laughs> and I, but it's so, you know, forget that. And uh, when they're doing like that, blood can sit there and clot. And that's what puts you at risk for stroke. And so atrial fibrillate and stroke being a clot traveling from your heart to your brain and causing damage to your brain. And so, that's one reason that we need to know about AFib and HCM is because we are just at much higher risk for stroke. And it doesn't matter, you know, some doctors use a conventional risk score for stroke and in, in, in if you have AFib, that doesn't matter in HCM. If you have AFib, you need to be on a blood thinner. doesn't matter if you're young or old. Um, there are some caveats and like if someone has really high risk for bleeding and things like that, that there's a shared decision-making, but the vast majority of people should be on a blood thinner, regardless of what their other risk factors are, just because we know the risk for stroke and HCM. And it's such a devastating complication of this disease. The risk is so high that you should be on the blood thinner, but that's the one part of it. The other part is most people with HCM do not tolerate atrial fibrillation well at all. And when I was saying earlier about people saying, I went into a funny heart rhythm at 3.30 and I felt bad since then, that's almost always AFib. 
like this persistent, I knew when it started and it stuck around and I knew when it stopped almost atrial fibrillation every time. So both my sister and my dad were big AFib patients and they would get this look on their face. They're like the fish. My father would say the fish is flopping again because he could feel it. Yeah, and my father yeah. was a fisherman. He's like, the fish is flopping again. I'm like, that's my dad's mm-hmm. really articulate way of saying I'm in AFib right now, yeah. uh, which would then have that downstream consequence of, okay, let's take some extra meds. Let's see if we can break it. He would do some mm-hmm. tricks with ice and water and plummeting his, his wrists into cold water to try to shock. It worked a lot. Um, and then he would try some different types of coughs that would work for him. And then we would go to the emergency room and he cardioverted. And he was cardioverted no fewer than 14, 15 times in his life. Yeah. Um, that was that was dad. Oh, gosh. Um, Poor guy. Um, then, yeah, well, dad also went on to have a left atrial reduction at the Cleveland Clinic. And Nick Smidera is mm. like, that's the largest left atria I've ever seen. And he was like almost... His right was like nine and his mm-hmm. le- right was like nine and left was like eight. How my oh. father's heart held on as long as it did, I'll never know. So they did a right and left atrial reduction. Crazy, you know, like yeah, you don't hear old about school. I-, I know like two or three people other than my father who's had it done. So dilation of the atria leads to arrhythmias um, and it makes you feel crappy. Mm-hmm. That, that's an official Jersey girl term. AFib and HCM makes you feel crappy. Um, yeah. I do want you to talk for just a quick moment about the role, if any, and when of a Watchman device and what is a Watchman device. Yeah. And so when I was talking about the top chambers of atria being at risk for building up clots, well, one of the biggest reasons they're at risk for building up clots is because they can, the top chamber has this thing called an appendage, which is this like ear like projection that sticks off of the atrium. Yeah, and and so that is at particularly high risk for clot. And so sometimes in patients that cannot tolerate being on a blood thinner, we can use this thing called a Watchman device, which almost looks like a little parachute with metal tines that when you deploy it, it seals off the ear, essentially. Like the, the appendage comes off the atrium and it's like a circle there and you deploy this balloon looking thing, but the watchman sits in there, expands and tries to seal off the appendage with the goal being that if no blood can get back there, no clot will form. And that, you know, in theory, you should be protected. In theory. In theory. Um, I wouldn't say that we, we definitely don't just do it for people that don't want to take a blood thinner. That is not, you know, a clear indication to put a watchman in. Sometimes people just can't be on blood thinners for devastating issues with bleeding and things like that. That is one way of sealing off the appendage to try and decrease their risk of stroke. You know, there's other ways that the appendage can be sealed off. A lot of times when we're operating on patients um, for myectomies, things like that, they can either snip them off or they can tie them off the appendage to try and decrease that risk. They're all trying to get at the same goal, which is to seal off the appendage. I bring it up because I recently spoke to somebody who their local doctor is treating their AFib with a Watchman device and no anticoagulation, and it was never even tried. And I'm like, okay, that that's not standard of care. That's not how it's typically done. And a Watchman device is not 100% 
effective against a clot being formed because you still have a dilated atria, you still have some turbulent blood flow, yeah. and you still have the ability of the atria, not the appendage, of developing that clot. So, yeah. you know, even though blood thinners aren't 100% effective in yeah. reducing or eliminating the risk of, of clot, but they're really good at lowering the risk exponentially, but not to zero. Um, correct or incorrect? Uh, you're right. I mean, yeah, the, in, in other conditions that are, you know, similar to HM, like amyloidosis, um, where the atria get really, really big and stiff too. And this can happen in certain forms of HCM that you can then form a clot in another part of the atrium that is not the appendage. So you're right. Um, you know, we try and do anticoagulation um, if possible. That, and, and then also try and get you out of AFib. Because um, most people don't like AFib. it. It's a nasty That's subject. true. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't. Okay, so we are kind of heading into the second part of our conversation here, because we talked about atrial arrhythmias, talked about ventricular arrhythmias. If you want to hear more about the treatments for atrial arrhythmias, we talked about that in our last podcast with Marty Marin. So you can go pick up that one. And there's lots of information on the HCMA website. But I wanted to take a moment because um, Alex and I go way back to even before I actually remember Alex, because I talked to his mom first, um, which is not something that I typically do with physicians that I work with. And I'll check in with their mom. Um, but I met mom first and then we met, um, because HCM is a family thing, right? And HCM runs in families. It runs in mine. It runs in yours. And as we go into April, um, our theme of the month is knowing your family heart health history and understanding how important it is for family members to be screened. So Tell me what you think about when I say family heart health history. Like, what does that invoke for you personally and then as a physician? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I see you think, oh, yeah, you know, I know I know what's going on in my family. Uh, and it's particularly humbling for me um, because my I see my patients now. My family was no different than anybody else. Um, when we were diagnosed, nobody had HCM in our family. And then all of a sudden my brother and I had it. Um, and then my parents were checked and they didn't have any evidence of disease. Weird. Um, but then when you look a little bit deeper and it was actually me sending messages back then they used to use MSN chat and ICQ and all these different chat messaging things. This is when like I was a kid. Dating yourself. Yeah. So I was, I would send these messages to people I didn't know, uh, in Cuba and other places where my family was from. And they had been diagnosed with this thing called IHSS. And I was like, okay, what is IHSS? It's HCM. HCM. <laughs> and so, you know, we uh, went from nobody having this condition to like four aunts and uncles on my dad's side having it. Um, and, and, you know, no one talked about it. No one talked about it. And the different names were used, which made it even more complicated to communicate. And, you know, not everyone was medically savvy about it. And so I think that the that a lot of that is on the physician when they meet you, that point of contact to really stress the importance of this is what you have. And a lot of times I'll draw the heart out and write stuff on the back of the patient's EKG mm -hmm. and I give it to them at the end of the visit. First of all, because most of the EKGs look wonky and you don't want to show up in an emergency room with your EKG and chest pain and them not know what you have. 
but then they keep what's on the back. That's true. And so, you know, I think it's important so that the physician really imprints on, on you the first time you meet talking to your family members about what it is, the importance of all first degree family members getting screened. And that by screening, I mean an ultrasound of the heart, an EKG, and a visit with someone that knows something about HCM. Can be a general cardiologist, but you know, if it gets complicated, sometimes it's helpful for at least that general cardiologist to have a conversation with someone that sees a lot of HCM. Um, but so that, that's, that's what I try to do. Is, that is one of those issues. Like if you go to a community cardiologist and you say there's HCM or you use the old words, there's IHSS or ASH or mm-hmm. apical HCM, or you come up with one mm-hmm. of many definitions of HCM. If they don't see a lot of it, they might be able to do an echo. And if you have a very classic presentation, it's easy to find. If your hypertrophy is in the lateral wall, if it's not in a common spot, like it's not in the septum, it's uh, in the apex, but maybe more on the outer wall towards the bottom of the apex, they might not get the images right. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I'm hoping that we evolve to in, in cardiology as a whole is better community-based echoes, but a general echo can be done by any kind of doctor. You don't need to have a special license to perform a cardiac echocardiogram, like you don't have to do that. So you wanna know who's doing it, how many images they're taking, are they protocol driven? You know, it's not the sonographer's fault if they don't catch it, if they didn't know to look at the right angles or the person who's reading it doesn't know what they're reading. It's like giving yeah. somebody a book in English when they only speak Spanish. They'll pick out some of the words, yeah. but they're not going to get it all. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think that the power of going to a center where they like a center of excellence, like, so for instance, yesterday, I read 12 Mavic Hampton patient echoes and there were like six HCM stress echoes and then another slew of HCM resting echoes done because Anjali was in clinic and I was reading Mava and Teresa was in clinic. And so we probably did more HCM echoes yesterday than most places in the community do in months. Years. Maybe years. Years. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And so, you know, when you see it so much, when the people doing the study see it so much, like I get called all the time, like, oh, Alex, we got another HCM. I was like, all right, let's do it. And, and there, it just makes a difference when you've seen it so many times and you know what to look for and you can move the probe just a little bit to find the thickest spot. Um, and so I, I, it makes a difference, um, but at least getting the initial screening, like even if you can't come to a center of excellence to get the initial screening, if the EKG is abnormal, the machine will say it, <laughs> you know, like just get the, tell your family, I get the initial screening and it doesn't just stop there, but the initial screening is the first step. So what do you see is the value of genetic testing in families today? So, you know, genetics, you know, dating back to the early nineties when the Seidmans, you know, made the first familial genetic diagnosis and started figuring out the genes to where we are now, it's been a huge leap in our panels. Now you can get combined cardiomyopathy and arrhythmia panels, and they test a lot of genes. Mm -hmm. And if you look across all the centers of excellence, 
um, across the country to see high volumes of patients, I think about 50% of people will come back with a positive test. They get that have bona fide HCM on imaging, diagnosed with HCM, and they get tested. About half will come back with a with a genetic marker that we think very li- is very likely to cause their HCM in their family. That doesn't mean that the other 50% don't have a genetic form of HCM because I have multiple families that multiple people have the disease and they get multiple, they've had panels done from different companies and they're always negative. That just means that we're probably not smart enough to know why genetically you guys have it. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you do have a positive genetic test, it can be really helpful in guiding screening for family. Um, it's not necessarily going to change at least in the state we are today, maybe at some point it will change how we treat you, but it's not necessarily going to impact my immediate clinical management for the person sitting in front of me. But if you have, let's say three children and you can test them each for the specific genetic change that you have that caused your HCM and two of the three don't carry that gene, that means their risk of developing this disease is the same as the general population. So they're not at the same risk as your son or daughter that does carry the gene. And so the screening, the lifetime surveillance, that changes. Because if you have that genetic risk factor, we're going to be watching that kid. Because at some point, there's a, it's not 100%, but it's, mm-hmm. it's possible that they could develop HCM. And then that way we're ready. So it makes a difference there. And I for talk- family planning. A perfect segue. Did you read my mind, Alex? We're getting good at this. I spoke to a a young man yesterday. He's in his mid-30s. There's a question as to what his path forward is going to be. It may include a transplant. It might not. We're not sure yet. Uh, And I asked him, have you had genetic testing yet? And he's like, well, no, because I know what I'm going to do. I said, well, are you planning on having children? He doesn't have siblings. His parents are not in the question right now uh, for other reasons or whatever. But I'm like, are you planning on having kids? He's like, yeah, I think I want to have kids. I'm like, do you want to have biologic children? He said, I think I do want to have biologic children. I said, well, there are pathways that you can use to have a child in an HCM family created with PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnostics, that the child may not have to have HCM. And he went, I didn't know that that was possible. I'm like, and that's why we're talking today. So now he's going to go get genetic testing and then he can have that conversation with his partner. Do we want to do IVF and PGD to try to have a child that is free from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? And just the fact that that's a possibility today is amazing, but you have to know gene to know if you can use that or not. Yep. And, and, you know, I had this a long conversation because I've had this conversation with so many patients recently because I've just had a slew of young people. Um, And, I had a long conversation with our genetic counselors about this because it take, there's a lot of counseling that goes into that process. And one thing I try and really impart on the families is that there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer, you know, no. and there shouldn't be any guilt, you know, in saying, you know what, I don't want to do this because on the flip side, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here if our parents did that. Right. And, True. and so it's, it's a very much a, a decision that's up to the person. There's no right or wrong. Um, so, but, but it, it, in my opinion, is a crime if people don't know it's an option. 
I we agree a hundred percent there to know all of your treatment options and all of your life options are yeah. critically important. I remember, and I'm going to go back here to like the second HCM International Summit. Barry Marin held it. It was in Minnesota, and a gentleman from the Philippines came with a picture of his his child who had been created with PGD. We had not had a confirmation whether or not the child was truly HCM free or not. It turned out later that it wasn't because they were, they were only at that point like 60% effective in you know embryo selection. So it didn't work in that child, but we've used it in others and it's worked very well. But th- I'm going back now to like 2002, three. So early, early technology. And this physician came out to talk to me at the break. And he said, are you not incensed by that? that voodoo magic that they're doing with the with trying to create designer children. And I said, no, I think it's pretty awesome. And if I had the opportunity to not give HCM to my daughter, I might've taken it up, but that was 1995. And it's, you know, I like that my kids may not have to have kids with HCM if they so choose to use those pathways. And he yeah. said, but you wouldn't be here. I'm like, yeah, but somebody else would be here. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, like, yeah. I, I don't think I'm that important, but that's okay. Um, but that's my thought. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, and and so I think having uh, an honest, thorough discussion about it is an important part of the genetic counseling, um, because you know that's that is also a, you know, that affects the rest of the family. It does, yeah. and it can help uncover some of those medical mysteries that you didn't quite understand. And that's true. There's so much knowledge. And what the future holds, we were discussing earlier, there's a lot coming down this pike of, of genetic therapies, genetic treatments, so much so that on March 15th of this year, the FDA opened up a brand new office to strictly manage the influx of new genetic therapies that are being developed. So the FDA had to set up a whole new division. I'm going to get you the proper name here. It is called Establishment of the Office of Therapeutic Products. And under that new um, division of the FDA, that new office of the FDA, there are one, two, what, one, two, three, four, five, six different offices, each with multiple divisions. So genetic therapies are being developed for other diseases, not just HCM and whatever, but our country is starting to tool up to be able to address the needs of this particular community. Um, so of uh, genetic therapy. So it's it's coming. We should all become educated and we should all become aware of what's happening. Do you have any thoughts on what's coming? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of interest in it. Um, you know, the idea being that if you have a genetic form of this condition that we know the gene, and, you know, you you inherit one copy of a gene from each parent and all it takes with HCM most of the time is one abnormal copy. And whether it's that that gene then is not making a normal amount of protein, then the idea behind some of these therapies or a normal protein itself, the therapy would be to replace that gene and, and to make that gene work appropriately. That's an incredibly simplistic way of, of portraying it, but if we can then make your body 
create a normal protein by making the gene normal, then maybe it can help your disease. And, and, and I think there's a lot of very interesting, fascinating work um, that's especially being done in conditions that otherwise, you know, would be fatal. Um, and, and so I think that there's going to be, need to be a lot of thought going into patient selection and who the right people are that are going to be selected for these kind of therapies and making sure that everyone is truly aware of the risks and benefits. But I, it's, it's like, like you said earlier, it's coming. And so we have to be prepared and we all need to be involved. We all need to have our voice at the table and, and you'll be hearing more about that. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap up today's conversation with a little bit of an announcement for some people that they'll care about and others won't care about it so much. Um, there was also another notice from the federal government yesterday that there is going to be a major shift in UNOS and they are going to basically break up the monopoly of UNOS as a nonprofit for those who are unaware UNOS is the organ uh, procurement, or basically they're the governing body of how organ transplantation is managed in the United States. However, they are a nonprofit organization that is a quasi-governmental agency, meaning they receive most of their funding from the federal government, but they operate actually under the same structure as HCMA. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. But there have been some problems with technology and delivery and communication that were the feature of a public meeting in front of, um, I don't know if it was Congress or Senate, um, last fall, I participated in that meeting. And the findings of the committee were that they need more infrastructure and they need to be more updated. And um, the current administration has put forward a, I think, $65 million proposal to overhaul the entire organ transplant uh, system in the United States. Um, it would um, encourage better transportation documentation. You can track your pizza from Domino's to your house, but you can't figure out where the kidney is in transport. And they've lost multiple organs. So you have somebody sitting there waiting for a kidney to arrive and it's literally gone. There's stories of them getting run over by delivery trucks. There's terrible, terrible stories of wasted organs. And a large number of organs that are available <clears throat> are not utilized because our systems are too slow and antiquated and old. And the government has stepped in and said, we're going to put some resources here and clean up the system. So it's not going to impact anybody who's currently listed today. We're going to keep the, the programs running as they are, as they develop new ones. So you're going to probably start to see some news coverage on this. So if you're a transplant pathway patient, don't panic. We're, we're, we're on that one too. And we're going to keep you informed as things progress. Um, so Alex, any final thoughts for this third time you're joining me on podcasting? Uh, you know, I think since one of the bulk of what we discussed, a large part of it was arrhythmias. I think the one thing I want to leave the conversation with is if you do have a lot of arrhythmias, particularly like most people think about the ventricular ones similarly, but the ones from the top chambers, the atria, don't be afraid to get second opinions on, you know, going to centers that do a lot of interventions for atrial fibrillation and flutter. Recently, we had an HCMA 
talk with our center and I had patients asking me questions about like very specific questions about like, well, we've done this and this and it didn't work. What's the next step? Mm-hmm. And so I, I would implore you to consider if you live near a, a large center that has a lot of electrophysiology, those are those doctors that do these procedures to try and get people out of AFib, like ablations. Mm-hmm. I would put in a plug for, for getting another opinion too, because sometimes there's certain technologies that are offered in one place and the other that could maybe get you out of AFib. And, you know, a life out of AFib with HCM is probably a much better life than in it. It's not, sometimes we just can't get you out of AFib, but that would be based off our arrhythmia discussion. One of the things I would think about is just make sure you're plugged in, in an electrophysiology program that, that does a lot of uh, ablations and sees HCM. I will add to that, that if you have financial difficulties and you cannot get to a center, the HCMA pro, uh, has the Lori Fund. You can apply for a travel grant and we'll give you up to $600 a year in travel funds, which is typically enough to pay for a plane ticket, a night in a hotel, a train ticket, gas money. We don't want you to say, I wish I could, but I can't get there. We will do what we can to help you get there. We will do what we can to help appeal to your insurance company that you should be allowed to go out of network. Mm-hmm. We will be there for you. That is what our job is as advocates, is to help you get to those care models that can provide you with the best therapies and outcomes. So don't suffer in silence and don't let your pride get in the way of applying for a grant. The money is sitting here. I want to give it to you. We've raised the money for you. Please come apply and take it. And if you have resources and you think, wow, that's really great, you can donate to the Lori Fund right on the website. So we yep. can we can do that both ways. Um, I will wrap with asking everybody to join us this evening where we will be having yet another Big Hearted Warrior Tour. And we will be featuring a smaller program that some of you may not have heard of yet. It is in Rochester, New York. It is Rochester Regional. Um, Dr. Bipple Bypath, which I just love saying his name over and over again. Bipple Bypath, Bipple Bypath. What a great name. <laughs> Took me a while to pronounce it properly, but I just think it just... It's very poppy. So he is the director of the program with the awesome name. And um, he's a lovely individual. I actually helped set him up on a mentoring process with Harry Lever, who basically has taught him the tricks and tips of 40 years of HCM echo reading. So uh, we all love Dr. Lever. So he, we're going to be meeting with Rochester Regional tonight. It starts at 6.30. If you haven't signed up yet, you can still do so. And we've got some other programming coming up next month. We're going to be talking more about clinical trials. We're going to talk about clinical trials in the myosin inhibitor space. We'll be meeting with Cytokinetics to talk about Sequoia. I'm like, which tree are we talking about t- this time? We're talking about Sequoia. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They got a thing for trees over at Saito and they name all their yeah. trials after trees. So we have Sequoia and then we'll touch on maple and then forest is the whole conglomeration of all of them. So it's, it's the good trials. We want to make sure everybody knows how to access clinical trial information. Oh, tomorrow morning. This is not a normal podcast time. Friday is my podcast time, but Alex is special. So we put him in on Thursdays. But tomorrow I will be meeting with an author of a recent publication on diet and exercise in HCM from NYU. Join us tomorrow morning for a, an enthralling conversation about why weight management is really important to our community and we all need to kind of focus on it. No shaming anybody. It's a challenge and there may actually be reasons why it's a little harder for people with HCM to drop weight 
than other people and we're evolving in our knowledge of metabolics and how our hearts use energy and how that might play a role and why it's a little harder for some of us to shed those pounds even after they take the heart out of your body I don't know <laughs> all right I'm a, I'm a 50 something year old girl these things happen to us we get a little chubby as we get older you won't know these things Alex mm. you don't have to go to menopause thank <laughs> <laughs> god uh, yeah, let's, yeah. Thank yourself for that one. Uh, additionally, um, as I have brought that topic up quick, um, I want to hear back from you. Um, we've had some requests for some dis- different types of discussion groups. Um, give us some feedback. I've been asked to hold a session on sex lives of those with HCM and how to have normal sexual relations. And I don't want to not discuss things that some people giggle about. We can giggle about it too, because you know. It's always fun to giggle about these things, but we've been getting more questions on that one. So um, I'm looking for a um, hmm, I'm looking for a male <laughs> to partner with me in a couple discussion groups. Alex, let's think about that. Sure. Okay. okay. Well, I just nailed that one down, people. Okay. So yeah. we're going to plan that. <laughs> we're going to plan that, and we're going to have an open and honest discussion about sex lives and HCM. Um, so that's important too. There's more coming. Lots happening. October 21st, mark your calendars, come to New Jersey, plan on being here. We're going to go back to an in-person meeting. We're going to get all of our big-hearted friends and colleagues in one room and have deep discussions and move the ball forward and get everybody involved in this community. Because people, you are part of a very unique community, and we want to continue to build the community. Alex, my dear, thank you so much for joining us today from your basement. I love the artwork behind you. It shows me that you really are a doctor because no, the other uh, one looks like organs. That's On the other Tennessee. Side, that's Vanderbilt. That's and Vanderbilt. that's a heart. Heart, that's a heart, lungs. Yeah, that's normal thickness, but we won't hold it against it. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks everybody on Facebook for watching. This has been Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HMA brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at Cytokinetics, Bristol Myers Squibb, Tanaya Therapeutics, and Embrya Pharmaceuticals. So thank you all for your support of this and other programming at the HCMA.